listeners today on cliffcentral.com. You are listening to Professor David Block, and you are most welcome to join me on this broadcast entitled Looking Up with David Block. I suppose that as you and I walk, move, and have our being on that pale blue dot, as dubbed by Carl Sagan, the Earth, there are billions of people. And each one of these people, just as every listener, is unique and irreplaceable, has a unique fingerprint, has a unique DNA, has a unique vision, has a unique dream. Walking multitudes of different paths, Maybe some in Beijing. Maybe some listeners in Chicago. Walking myriads of different paths. And yet, in a very true sense, I would suppose that those paths eventually form a cosmic tapestry. Before I introduce my very special studio guest this afternoon on Looking Up with David Block, Please remember the following with regard to reaching me. The studio number is 0861-555-189. That's 0861-555-189. The Twitter handle is at cliffcentral.com. The WeChat, Cliff Central. Facebook, Cliff Central. And on Instagram, you reach us at Cliff Central. To reach me, my personal webpage is www.davidblock.co.za. And for those who are so graciously following me on Twitter, you can tell your friends to join me at Starry Galaxy Man. At Starry Galaxy Man. We were talking about billions of people, billions of roads, billions of dreams, billions of visions, billions of what lies beyond tomorrow. And one of the very special people I have been privileged to meet over the last couple of months was uh, the CEO of FNB, the consumer division thereof, and his name is Jan Kleinhans. And Jan, it's a great pleasure and a privilege and an honor and a joy to have you join us here at Cliff Central as FNB CEO of Consumer. Welcome. Good afternoon, David, and good afternoon to all the listeners. And I must say, it's such fun to be able to talk to you over the Internet. My very first interaction with you was also via uh, the Internet in a way that you emailed FNB and said you had a problem. So here we are again, surfing. (laughs) Well, I just love that word, surfing. It carries life. And I suppose, Jan, we always think that emails are somehow static, but indeed you reached me, I reached you via email, and in, indeed in a very true sense, it's possible to surf the net and to find extraordinary people such as yourself. Just to kick off the show today, uh, please, Jan, I'd like, I'd love you, not like, but love you, 
to tell listeners just a little bit about where was Jan Kleinhans born? What did Jan Kleinhans do as a little boy? What did Jan Kleinhans dream? Please lead us down that dusty road. <laughs> it's a Jan Kleinhans was born exactly 50 years ago, almost to the day. Yes. Uh, so I've had a great, great year this year. Yes. Um, I was born into a privileged uh, family in Johannesburg in the northern suburbs. Um, despite my name, um, Jan Kleinhans, I should be a proper Afrikaans-speaking chap, but uh, through, through uh, I guess, history, we, we grew up in the English uh, parts of Johannesburg, went to English schools. Mm-hmm. I uh, had English... Uh, one or two English girlfriends and lots of English mates. So it kind of ended up like that. Um, fortunately, I went to the army and got indoctrinated by this, uh, you know, by the, the, in those days and kind of picked up the language then. So it was actually quite a strange um, sort of history to kind of grow up as an English guy, but yet with Afrikaans breeding and background. So yes. I'm a bit of a um, uh, sort of a kaleidoscope, I think, in that regard. But I yes. love my culture, love my background, and just uh, not the best Afrikaans-speaking chap, but... Anyway, so enough about that. But really, uh, as I said, grew up in a very privileged uh, home and with loving parents and three wonderful brothers. Um, and we had just had great times. We were sporty. We were out there. Um, our parents were very progressive, even for those days in the 60s and 70s and 80s. Mm-hmm. So we were allowed mm-hmm. to, I think, explore life and, and uh, just to see what was out there for us. So, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a product of an incredibly uh, fortunate and privileged background. And what are some special memories, say, with your mother or your father, um, as, say, a young boy. I remember myself, aged uh, 15, 16, 17, being so passionate about the night skies. And my parents were always there, Jan, to encourage and to fuel. Are there any special stories you'd like to share with the listeners on cliffcentral.com with regard to just, you know, igniting your father or your mother, igniting your passion? Lots of stories, but I think the things that I'll come back to are around animals yes. and around friendship yes. and around dinner table chats. Good. So we had lots of uh, chats. My, my dad was a – unfortunately, I lost him a year ago. He passed away. He was one of these guys that was a little in the background in the conversation, but he was very quick with his wit and his sense of humor, and he just let us have – you know, be ourselves. He let us have our conversations. My mom is, is fortunately still alive, and she would – she was the life and soul of the party and the – you know, bring out great food and make sure we were fed and, and we had drinks in our glasses, people around the table, lots of family. So our home was, friends would characterize our home as a, almost like a railway station. The Clarence house was one where people would come and go. They were always welcome. My mom always had food around. Maybe the food is what brought people in. But uh, certainly we, we were just very fortunate that we can just have this, this, this sort of free flow of people yes. in and out. Now, of course, you have a specific <clears throat> zest for life. Uh, you love to be alive. You have a wonderful way of connecting with people. And did this, was this impregnated by your parents, would you say? And by the sitting around perhaps the fireside or in the lounge? Or was this something rather internalized rather than externalized? Firstly, thanks for that, David. You know, I, I was the youngest and the youngest of four boys. So being the youngest and, and a bit small at the time, I had to listen to the, the older three. And if I, dare I say anything out of line, I would have got a solid <laughs> whack across the head. Yes. Um, so no, to be honest and to, in, in, in seriousness, I think, uh, you know, that's the dialogue and the discourse that we had. Uh, I think just, I suppose, you know, one would sit and listen and we had very 
good, uh, interesting people that my folks would have around for dinner, business people, yes. you know, scientists like yourself. Yes. And so, so the, the, the collage of, of conversation was broad and, and yes. vast yes. And, and a lot of depth to it. Um, and I think, I guess, you know, one, you know, if, if you expose that sort of background and you have a lot of that kind of mm-hmm. uh, dialogue going on, one, one mm-hmm. I suppose, becomes a natural part of who you are. Mm-hmm. Now, let's just unwrap this for our listeners, most of whom are under 25. And, of course, some are privileged to come from backgrounds such as yourself. But I would say, in having dealt with plethora of people over the years, both here and overseas, is that not many people can claim to become from the sort of background, perhaps, that you come from. So let's take a listener, for example, uh, you know, uh, perhaps split school, perhaps listening to me today, uh, you know, perhaps staying in a shack or perhaps uh, staying in a tiny little room, sharing that tiny little room with five or six people. What advice would you give to such a person today to find their passion? Because as I have come to know you over time, Jan, uh, and I am speaking uh, to Jan Kleinan, CEO of FNB, the consumer division, and Jan, you have a unique way of looking life, not in terms of parts, but in terms of wholeness, in terms of a tapestry. Now, to such a listener, say, who's sharing uh, their bedroom with four other people or so forth, how would you recommend that people can actually find their groove in life, given perhaps that their financial means are so limited? You know, David, I read a lovely book recently, and, and one of the things that I took away from the book was that one can find your happiness through experiences. Yes, and and I think that's I suppose been my uh, inherent almost philosophy is I've 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 dabbled in various parts of my career I've I've travelled I've you know kind of and been fortunate to travel but I, I think fundamentally even if I didn't have the means or the you know or the sort of the uh, um, the time to do these things but I think that sense of adventure that sense of of you know there's something out there and and I think in in experiences whether it's meeting people in your immediate surroundings or you know just walking down the road and you know, it's, I think it's about just being receptive to mm-hmm. what's out there, what's available, mm-hmm. and 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 you know, one's circumstances are, are, are relative. You know, we spoke about it a little bit earlier today. Of course. You know, and and I think it doesn't matter where you find yourself, but I think if what I do tend to find in in our in our business or in people that are t- typically successful is that they are very curious about the world. Very, Curiosity, exactly. Yes. And and I think that was probably something that naturally uh, sort of was always sort of in my that the fire in my belly was. There's something out there. I was always very keen to explore, get on my bike, uh, ride the suburbs. Wonderful. Um, so it's, it's that sort of sense of adventure. I'm an outdoor kind of person. And I think that's, I, I guess, you know, my experience. And, and I do find that having been, I guess, very outward looking and very forward looking, one is perhaps able to pick up opportunities. I think that in terms of um, lighting the fire in one's belly, it does come down you know, whichever area our listeners happen to be in, whether it be the macrocosm, the starry vaults of the Via Lactea, or the Milky Way, the the glory of the night skies above, or whether it happens to be, you know, being here on terra firma, I think that one common thread which would link Jan and myself is indeed one of curiosity. 
I personally, as the listeners know, am terribly curious about the birth of stars, about the death of stars, about the shapes of galaxies, about the morphology of spiral galaxies. But I would say that what really drives me is passion and curiosity. You know, curiosity for the blackness of space out there. And here Yanni is saying to our listeners that curiosity is driving him on terra firma, which I think is just totally, totally awesome. Now, one very unique characteristic, which I've really loved about uh, Mr. Kleinhans, is this. Uh, Mr. Kleinhans believes that there's a very unique set of analogies between the love of his life, and he'll tell you what the love of his life is, not speaking about his wife now, <laughs> but speaking about a specific kind of animal, and his entire outlook on life. And I found that absolutely fascinating. So, Jan, just lead us down this path of who, whom you are in love with in the animal sense of the word, not in terms of your wonderful family. And then let us start teasing out uh, some of the analogies. Listeners, listeners, this will truly rivet your viewpoint on life itself. Please tell us. Yeah. So I have to say, David, the love of my life is my wife, Tanya, and yes. my children. So <laughs> let's, let's get that right. Uh, but, and I okay. think, like, otherwise you might suffer <laughs> the fate of Marie Antoinette tonight. <laughs> I was very careful when I asked that yeah. question in the animal sense. The disclosure was there. But I think one thing that we share is, is a life uh, of, of animals and, um, and people. But I think the animal space that I mentioned that right at the beginning when, when we, grew, when I grew up is that we always had dogs and my, my one brother was, very interesting. He would bring home all sorts of animals, whether it was a monkey or a, a dog or a, you know something. There's always interesting stuff around the animal space. Yes. Um, but but what what you're referring to basically and for the listeners is my my love and passion for horses. Absolutely. So again, um, this this little love affair started when I was age five, and we were at a resort out in uh, in Rustenburg Way, and my parents, uh, unbeknown to them that this will be the consequence, plonked me on a horse, and I just thought this has got to be like. Um, heaven, mm-hmm. oh, he's like heaven, and just sitting on the animal and the smell and the, and just the, the sheer awesomeness of their size and 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 what they basically, I think, represent to me is just a journey that I've absolutely uh, loved. So I'm, I'm I'm back into it now. I, I as a kid rode uh, horses uh, and not not a lot, but kind of grew up with with the sport. I did, did other sports, but I kept coming back to this. Yes. And then recently, in the last seven or eight years, uh, fortunately through my my uh, my kids also loving horses and my wife, mm-hmm. as I said. We really said this is this is something that we want to make very much part of our lives. So we we packed up shop and we built a, a lovely place in Kalami and, we, and we've got the horses at home. And and I think just just to summarize and just to perhaps kick off this topic, it's and then you asked me the other day. So what is it about horses that yes. that pushes my buttons? Absolutely. So absolutely. There's a I mean there's lots of literature and I'm sure listeners will look up about the the horse in the movies, the horse whisperer, and there's there's that whole mm. uh, sort of. Um, you know, almost mystery about so what, what is it? Yes. Intrigue, exactly. What is it about horses that, that, that really, you know, sort of get people going? Some people are scared of them because they've been kicked or they've been bucked off or yes. they've had some negative experience. Uh, I've had those too, but it keeps, you know, bringing me back. Yes. But I think, you know, after all of that, there's a, there's a soulfulness about a horse that is just unique. Um, the horses somehow speak to you. They connect with you through their, just the way they look at you through their beautiful eyes. They've got big, uh, big eyes and they, and they just almost look right through you. They, 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 their physical presence is one of, of just 
um, I guess, power and speed and, and, and um, strength, but, but actually underlying that their the, the natural or their uh, uh, sort of in, innate nature is one of gentleness and love. Wonderful. It's a, it's a unforgiving. It's a, it's a uncompromising love. It's a not judgmental. Not judgmental. And and in, in my experience, that just about every horse I've written written has and and have worked with, have basically said to me through through the unspoken word, you know, I'm there to please. I'm there to make you happy. I'm there to bring joy to Wonderful. your life. And and I think you know, and that's a very privileged sport. Make make no mistake. It, it's not cheap. But but you know, I think it's an example of something that, for me, is that is that connection with. With, you know, with another form of life on, on this earth. And that is that, you know, we, we obviously connect with people all the time and, and a lot of, you know, most of us humans love some form of animal. But, but I think the horse has a, a very special characteristic that, that I haven't found in, in others. And, and besides which is that, that connection, there's also the, the fun of riding them and working with them and jumping over jumps, etc. So there's, it really is a very broad, uh, almost topic that one can, you know, there's different aspects to it and, and, and the, the, the dimensions that they bring are, are vast. Of course, it's so different to the world that you and I really live, move, and have our being in. Because certainly, I suppose, in the academic world, but not so much in the academic world as perhaps in the corporate space, uh, one might, for example, find people being very judgmental, people being very impatient, people not valuing the awesomeness of time, people not valuing the awesomeness of silence and so forth. And here you're speaking about connectivity. So in other words, what you're saying to me is, it is such a privilege to ride a horse because you are riding an animal. Uh, there's no judgment. You spoke about, you spoke so eloquently about the horse actually just looking at you and accepting you for who you are. Would you say that these are some of the very basic needs of all our listeners on cliffcentral.com. That, that thing about, you know, looking at you the way you are is, mm. is I think for me, it was central. I, I guess, you know, when one is growing up, you want people to accept you as, as you are. Uh, the mistake we make when we grow up is that you, you adapt yourself and you model yourself to mm-hmm. suit others or to please others. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, a lot of people find themselves in trouble because of that. They always out there trying to please others and, and, serve others because of what their needs are and what their expectations and aspirations are there for you. And at the end of the day, one has to find yourself, find the, you know, that sort of peace within yourself that says, you know, this is what I, this is who I am. This is what I'm about. Yes, I'm going to obviously uh, interface with people in a way that, that is pleasant and that's um, enjoyable and so on. But, but I think that, you know, that, that sort of acceptance of who you are at, at a very natural basic level is something that, you know, I think we take for granted. I think one of the important things, Jan, that you certainly brought to the fore is the, uh, the, the concept of knowing yourself. Listeners, I might share a very interesting little sub-story in this connection, and that is, for example, I grew up in the little town called Krugersdorp out on the West Rand. And so, Jan, you can imagine growing up in a school, uh, Krugersdorp High School, out in Krugersdorp, die Westrand, and near Ranfantin and so forth, that uh, uh, one was exposed to perhaps an overemphasis in sport. Now, I got to know myself. I started knowing at a very early age that my specific strengths did not lie in rugby, for example. Now, 
the if you wanted to be elected as a prefect or a head boy at uh, Krugersdorp High School, you had to be a very active sports person, which I wasn't. And so I was never a prefect or a head boy. Uh, and what's so interesting is I was judged by my peers at that stage by my inability, if you like. And in a very sense, that is true. I just don't have the passion or the skills to really kick that rugby ball. But the important thing through that journey was that you've got to know yourself. You've got to understand that, yes, you might not be the next Jus van der Westhuizen or whomsoever, Pinar and so forth, but you've got to understand that you, the listener, every listener, is unique and irreplaceable. And what you are saying to me, Jan, uh, so eloquently today, is that one has to, through the sense of riding horses, one gets to know yourself, uh, your strengths and your weaknesses uh, in an unjudgmental, unconditional way. Is that the way you sort of feel when you actually ride the horse? It, it, it certainly does, and I think, you know, in, in my teenage years when I was riding, what, when, I guess when you're growing up and you're figuring out who you are and what, what you're naturally good at, what you're naturally like, what I always came back to with, with when I was riding was that, you know, you kind of sort of get to know, well, this, this is what I like. You know, this mm. is what I'm passionate about. This is what gives me energy. Mm. And I think this energy thing is, is I guess, at the center of it or at the root of it. Because it's, you know, if I look at, if I talk to people and I say, well, you know, what gets you excited about your career or your yes. job or your passion? People's eyes light up when they talk about something that they love. Yes. Whether it's music, whether it's, and it's often not about work, you know. Mm-hmm. It's quite Absolutely. tough to have those conversations mm-hmm. at work and people saying, well, you know, I'm mm-hmm. here to get my set, paycheck, etc." Mm-hmm. Then you ask people, so, you know, so what do you like to do? And then suddenly their eyes light up. And, and I think that's, that's really what it's about is, it's just that thing that, that stirs you, you know, that gets you really excited that says, hey, this is what I'm really interested in. Um, you know, I've got a friend at work that's, that's passionate about war games. Mm-hmm. He's just developed his own war game. He's about mm-hmm. to sell it now and I think do very well out of that. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's those kind of things that I think, you know, build that, that, that fire in one's belly. And I think if, if one has that in their life, in your life, it doesn't matter where it is. It could be at work, could be outside, could be with relationships or with family or with, or with your wife or your lover. You know, I just think that, that kindle, that, that, that fire has got to be, you know, kept, kept going. It's got to, it's got to be, it's got to grow. It's got to lead to other things. Um, and, and I think, you know, what I, what I often wonder is, in, do, have people really, well, you know, people I talk to younger guys, do they, do they find that within themselves and do they really kind of let it go? Because, you know, so often we try to please others and we don't really listen to that inner voice that's saying, this is what gets me really excited. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, I guess, the, the, the essence of perhaps mm-hmm. what I found. You are listening to Professor David Block and I have the joy of interviewing the CEO of FNB, Jan Kleinhans. This afternoon, and he takes care of the entire consumer division at uh, FNB. To reach us in studio, uh, the studio number is zero eight six one triple five one eight nine. The Twitter handle is at cliffcentral.com. The WeChat cliffcentral. The Facebook, likewise, cliffcentral. Instagram at cliffcentral. My Twitter handle is at starry galaxy man. At Starry Galaxy Men. And to contact me, read about some of the work we're doing, you can always go onto the web link 
www.davidblock.co.za. We're going to be taking a little break, a little music break, just enjoying some of Mr. Kleinans, Jan's favorite uh, music items, and we shall be back with you shortly. You are listening to Professor David Block, and I have the joy and singular honor today of introducing you to a very special man, uh, Jan Kleinans, uh, CEO of F&B, who's got a unique love for life, for his wife Tanya, his children, whose names I do not yet know, but I hope to know by the end of the show, and who has an incredible zest for life, but also who is a very unique problem solver. So let me just lay the story bare before our listeners today. There's a certain need which arose uh, in my life with regard to our home, and I needed to reach uh, FNB home loans quickly. And uh, the moment that uh, Mr. Kleinhans became aware of my need, he epitomized the theme or the logo, How Can We Help You? And uh, I must add that it was within a few hours on the same day that the CEO was in my lounge and the problem was sorted out immediately. And so I became uh, uniquely impressed by this uh, uh, CEO who was then the CEO of F&B Home Loans with regard to how does he actually solve problems. Jan. Please elucidate that because it left, it impregnated, your methodology certainly impregnated my neurophysiological processes or brain. So David, thanks. It was a, it was a, it was a fantastic day in that <clears throat> there was an opportunity to meet you. So let me be upfront and say when I, when I saw the, uh, in fact, I wasn't even sure it was Professor David Block, but certainly your name and I, I had heard you on the radio. I thought, this must be you. Yes. Um, so, so there was, there was that curiosity, I guess, which we'll come back to. But to be honest, you know, in a, in a big bank, I mean, we have, you know, many, many customers that are on, are just always having a need. They're, mm-hmm. you know, they're phoning us, they're emailing us, they're saying, Hey, I've got a problem. Sort this out. Mm-hmm. So I guess it's our central philosophy and our, our, our wish to, to really help customers as quickly as, as we could with you. Um, we sometimes get it wrong and we don't respond quickly mm-hmm. enough and people are unhappy and they go onto websites and complain. So I, I think it hurts me and I, and I always feel aggrieved that, you know, we've let, let customers down. But it, our intentions are, are really good in that we want to try and help people yes. as much as we can. That's, that's really our, who we're about. But, you know, and I think with that comes, I think, again, a interest in, so, so what, what is it that, that goes wrong? And, and how, you know, I love to help people. It's, I guess it's part of what I like to do. Mm-hmm. I like to, if friends are in trouble, I like to sit down and see if we can help. So mm-hmm. it's in my nature to want to be helpful and, and I'm very fortunate I find myself in the right business that, that, you know, is, has it at, at the center. So, so it is a natural thing of, of just, I guess it's, it's a bit of a, you know, um, esoteric sense of wanting to give back to society. So I've been very fortunate, as I said earlier, and mm-hmm. been able, and it's nice to be able to give back and share. And mm-hmm. so that's one aspect of it. Mm-hmm. The other thing is just, you know, solving problems. And, and what I like to try and do is remove obstacles. So with my, the people that work with me, if they've got issues at work and their battle, one, one, very nice thing about being a senior guy in a bank is is that ability to move remove obstacles and help uh, little silly things out the way to improve our you know what we do basically. So now let's it just gives say, me a lot of pleasure. 
Yes. Now let's and just I, let's just tease that out a little bit. Here we have a listener, for example, uh, 25 or 24 or 30 or so forth, and uh, they're trying to solve problems in their lives, and it's almost like life is a puzzle to them. Uh, how would you advise people? You know, and each one of us are surrounded by a plethora of problems. To actually, how would you suggest one knows that you know that you know that you know that you know <laughs> that this is where I will place my next piece of the puzzle to complete the puzzle to complete the cosmic tapestry? So, you know, I think from a customer perspective, it's it's um, what what we battle with philosophically is when customers give up on us. And what I yes. do love is that when customers actually don't give up. You, you were one of those. You said, I'm not going to stop until I go to the top. Right. If that's a cliche. Right. And, and I want to get an answer. And, and, right. and I think it also talks to the nature of people that we, you know, well, we, we, you know, sometimes people give up. They say, oh, forget it. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to hassle with this. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to pursue it. Mm-hmm. But I think in so going down this journey, one, one is relieved of that, of that frustration. So if, if you then eventually get to the top or you talk to a senior person or you talk to somebody and say, hey, listen, this is not acceptable. I, you know, you, you, I'm a customer of yours and I, I do expect good service. And I think putting that, you know, first and foremost in front of us is the right thing. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously for us, our job is to respond and, 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 and completely sort the problem out or in fact help customers out. So it, it, there is a, is a dialogue between, you know, it's a contract between us you know, as customers and as, as provider of services and, and mm-hmm. product that we really must, uh, do our absolute best to, to serve you. And, and if not, if we're not listening is to, is to actually make sure that we do, you know, uh, you, we get your uh, attention, or oh, you get our attention rather. Um, and and the, the second thing is the learning experience. You know, in your experience, what I learned from that was, hey, we, we had some things we had to address. Mm. And if we if we cognizant as a bank and as mm. as as managers in the bank, if we cognizant of the need out there, we're not listening to customers, and we're not mm. listening to what the need is, because we one in a big organization can get so inwardly focus on what we're doing, how we're doing, whatever, and we forget there's customers like you know, like you out there that mm. have a need, that have a requirement, that are you know, paying basically paying our salaries and we need to uh, we need to lock your socks off. So I guess I, those are the fundamental basics. I love the way Jan you emphasize the not giving up. Because I remember and this is just to share a little personal story, just to allow you to have some water, is <laughs> that uh, I uh, was part of a team, and uh, basically the request came from Professor Stephen Hawking in the United Kingdom. And Professor Hawking, as you know, none of us know how long he has to live. He's got this low Gehrig's disease and so forth. But he had a dream, Stephen Hawking did, to meet uh, former President Nelson Mandela. Now, at the time, Mr. Mandela, I am told, was receiving around 30,000 requests per month, 30,000 letters or emails per month to meet with him. Uh, and yet, I was part of the team and very privileged to be part of the team. Uh, out of the 30,000, we were selected as the people to meet with Mr. Mandela. And I'll never forget uh, driving with uh, Professor Stephen Hawking, the planet, undoubtedly the world's most famous living scientist, to meet, to allow him to meet our former president, Mr. Mandela. And I suppose that's another thread which links yourself and myself, Jan, is that I just never, ever, ever give up. I'm glad you saw that in your own, uh, with your own eyes with regard to the challenge we had uh, at FNB. 
But uh, I simply don't give up. When I take my family out for a meal and things are not going well, uh, maybe the service is slow, for example, I will end up in the kitchen. I did this in the Seychelles. Uh, uh, suddenly, they found me talking to the chef because I needed assistance. The food uh, sucked, to use the terminology of my um, my twin boys, Nathaniel and Tavia. And so I needed to get help uh, very fast. And so I went to the chef and everybody just looked. Uh, you know, here's one of the Seychelles uh, five, six-star restaurants and here's a uh, prof called David Block going into the kitchen. But I know how to get solutions. I don't give up and I always reach the right person. And I'm just so delighted that I met you because you were able to sh introduce me into your world. Your world of listening, your world too of uh, not giving up. We have a question from uh, Colin Atterbury. And uh, Colin, thank you so much for your um, participation uh, on the uh, Looking Up with David Block uh, today, interviewing the uh, CEO of FNB, the con uh, of the Consumer Division. Um, and Colin, um, your question is, of course, does FNB feel threatened by the rise of cryptocurrencies such as the Bitcoin, which could effectively replace banks, or are you trying to embrace it? What an excellent question, Colin, and I can think of no one better in uh, the country right now as one of the heads of one of our major banks to answer this today. Jan Kleinhans, your answer. So David, thanks. And, and Colin, uh, great question. Uh, Bitcoin is only something I've got to know about in the last uh, sort of six or eight months or so. It's, a, it's an incredible phenomena that, that I think started in the, in the States. And, and really, um, I mean, I'm not sure the exact origins of it, but, but clearly there's a need that, that the founders and, and the community that embrace it uh, you know, are addressing. And I guess you know, the, the, the response from us from, from a traditional bank is, you know, so, so needs arise um, – if to the extent that an organization like ourselves can't meet or can't help innovate or can't help with. So um, to, to, are we embracing it? No. But, but, but are we threatened by it? I guess one, you know, there's many threats out there for, for a bank like such as ourselves. It could be different payment streams. It could be different ways of pay, payment. For example, the credit card you know, could well be replaced by just a tap uh, of, of a payment by your phone. Um, these sort of technologies. So technology is ever-evolving. And and I think, you know, come from a, a, a background where FNB is 175 years old, you know, and been doing this stuff for, for a long time. Our, the danger we inherently face that we could, uh, you know, find ourselves one day being out innovated. So, so that's again central to our philosophy and our values is innovation and, and an outward looking approach. Um, what happens is these technologies and these, uh, phenomena, if you like, come along. Some of them really become fantastic. Some of them disappear. So, so we watch them, we, we, we learn from them, we see if we can um, kind of even perhaps even out-innovate them. So, so it, it depends on how we find ourselves in that payments landscape, as we call it, whether, mm. whether in fact it, it becomes such an amazing thing that, that we actually have to then say, hey, we, we're a part of this. So, look, I mean, you know, you know at the end of the day, the, the, the bank is, is, a, is a store of value that people use for, for security of cash. A bank represents a lot of things in people's lives, security and, and, and keeping their money and obtaining loans and getting advice. So it's not just about you know, one aspect of the payment system, which, which uh, and, and in fact the transacting 
space, which which Bitcoin represents. Um, so we, like I say, we we are aware of these type of uh, uh, technologies and, and strategies, and uh, we, our job is to really take what we do and do it a whole lot better than everyone else. Excellent. Now, Jan, I'd like to get onto the um, wearing your hat for a moment as FNB CEO of Home Loans. And uh, obviously, a very vital part of one's job there is to learn how to evaluate risks, risk management. Because uh, I don't know how many home loans FNB grants per month. You can share that with us um, if that's not confidential information. But the point I'm asking is, you know, uh, someone, a member of the public A, say, you know, comes to me uh, if I was wearing your hat. And says, you know, David, I need a loan. And then customer B comes and I need a loan. And, and of course, billions of rands are involved. And you need to know, first of all, how to take calculated risks with those, then with your consumers in granting them overdraft facilities and so on. And then, of course, risks globally. How do you, is, do you work on gut feelings? Do you work on total analytical approaches? How do you actually manage? Because risk, after all, even in my domain, has to be accepted, but it has to be managed. So, David, at the end of the day, our job is to, if I lend you money, yes. I've got to somehow evaluate whether you'll pay us back. Yes. And, and what's the chance of, of you not paying us back? So that's what our job is, is to, is to look at the odds of, and the probability of, of, of any individual paying us back. Mm-hmm. It could be one, one out of a hundred won't pay us back, two hundred, two out of a hundred, three out of a hundred. Mm-hmm. Surprisingly, um, the, our, our, our margin of error, if you like, is quite low, particularly mm-hmm. on, a, on a home loan, for example, because mm-hmm. we, we actually, you know, the margin we make on a home loan versus, say, for example, a credit card is, is not as great. And therefore, and, and of course, you, you know, you're letting out vast amounts of money for people to, to buy homes. Mm. And so the risk is greater in the quantum mm-hmm. of rands or money that we, that we lend out. You asked about some of the numbers. We have close to uh, half a million home loan customers throughout the bank, mm-hmm. and uh, we, we lend about between three and a half, four thousand customers a month, mm-hmm. just on home loans alone. Mm-hmm. On other, on credit cards, it'd be sort of ten, twelve thousand a month. Mm-hmm. So that gives you an order of, of the kind of numbers that, that we lend out every month. Now these are uh, sometimes existing customers that are coming back for a repeat loan. But but the very basics of it is, if you think back twenty or thirty years, when you mm. walked into a branch, there would have been a branch manager there who would have sat down and said, "Okay, professor, so how are you? How's your job?" And he gets to know you. Yes. He asks you how you're doing. Yes. He said, "Would you mind telling me how much you earn?" How much you know you spend, and I get a bit of a sense of why. Well, if I was a branch manager then, mm-hmm. I would have found out. So you know, can you afford this loan? You want to mm-hmm. buy a lovely home in Krugersdorp, and you know, uh, how do we know that you're going to? I remember those back? days so well of the the branch manager, <laughs> exactly the supreme authority he held. There was the peer account. There was a branch manager the branch in the town. Manager. <laughs> so 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 that was his his or her job in a, in a sort of very cognitive way of looking at you and getting to know. And and people still today talk about. How they don't want to upset the bank and the branch manager. You know, they, they know everything and, and I need to keep the branch manager on my side. So that, that, that phenomenon, if you like, of, of keeping, you know, uh, sort of the, the, a good view in the books of the bank is, is a very important thing. Today, obviously, with technology and with the volume and with the science that we have. So we have very sophisticated models that basically can predict the probability of what we call default. Mm-hmm. Of customers not paying us back. And it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's predicated on, what we call scorecards. So we'll mm-hmm. ask you your, you know, your age, where you live, um, uh, kind of what do you do, um, and and basically there's, there's about ten or twelve, fifteen factors that that we aggregate and we look at the experience of customers that haven't pa- paid us in the past, 
those that have paid us. Mm-hmm. And we call, we look at what we call as good and bad odds of those that won't or those that will pay us back. Mm-hmm. And basically our computer systems calculate that probability of, of, you know, Professor David Block paying or not paying us mm-hmm. back. Mm-hmm. And then to that the risk of not paying us back, we then attribute a price. So what's, what should this interest rate be that we take enough? So we're going to say yes to the loan. We can see you can afford it in terms of your, your income and your after your expenses. And we can do an overall calculation to say, okay, given taking all those factors into account, your age, your experience, mm. your, your, you know, your conduct in the past mm. with other forms of credit that you've borrowed, mm. that you've used in the past, we then make an assessment and we'll say, okay, for you, this home loan is, you know, it's going to be a 10% per annum for the next 20, 20 years. Off you go. So it's, it's a, it's this very scientific, uh, um, approach. But at the end of the day, and this is the thing is that although, we have a, apply a lot of science to, to the process. Mm. It still requires common sense. It still requires yep. somebody, even if it's yep. for two minutes, having a look and saying, yep. you know, is Professor able to afford the loan? And we, our philosophy is not mm. to, uh, you know, overgear people that they're just mm. unable to ever pay their debts mm. back. Obviously it happens. It's, you know, it's part of our, our business model that, that, you know, there is an element of bad debt mm. that comes from it, but it's not the intention of lending, you know, vast amount of money mm. to get people in trouble. Mm. Um, unfortunately it doesn't always turn out like that, but perhaps, that's for a discussion for another day. Are there any instances, Jan, where the following scenario occurs? And that is, the computer, for example, looks at a young man working in a garage, such as Bill Gates or Steve Jobs or so forth, and the computer says, no, the guy's working in a garage, he's got no regular income, the answer is most certainly no, to any sort of loan whatsoever. He's got no collaterals. He's got no security. Uh, he's just a guy with a dream. And yet, your gut feel might be, well, let's help this young person in the garage al- along because he might well be the Bill Gates or the Steve Jobs of tomorrow. Does that happen where the gut feel overrides the big N-O of the computer. <laughs> um, you know, I think certainly in the, in the, in the space where young entrepreneurs are trying to get going and, and that example you, you know, you painted where a young person has a dream and they don't have experience the means to be able to you know, get a loan. It, it is tough, especially with the credit laws that, that are around these days and the process one has to go through. Um, and there is unfortunately a huge amount, you know, there's more failures and successes. You know, out there. So again, our systems would say, what's the chance of this person making it? Probably quite low. So, so I think as in a, certainly in the business side, our business banking guys try, try their best to, to look through that, to look, see, is there something that the you know, customer might have that we perhaps can take a risk on? But would I'm your sure, system actually, sorry to interject, yes. would your system, your computer system allow for the human interface? In other words, where the guys in the garage, and it's definitely NO, no, and yet Jan Kleinans has met this person, has faith in this individual, can see that this youngster is an entrepreneur. Does the FNB system allow for the human interface to be unmasked and for Jan to sign the dotted line to grant the loan? David, I wish you should, could work in our bank because it's a great question. And, and this is the kind of thing that we, we forget is that you know, at the end of the day, there are customers out there with a need. They're real people with real, real requirements. The computer system to answer your question, yes, it, it certainly allows for that override, as we call it. Yes. But it, it, it does require that face-to-face 
um, interview. It does, like. does it? Does. It's not yeah, I, you know, if, if some, I, often when I was in the home loan business, people come to me and say, "Hey, you've overlooked this. You've overlooked that. Did you know that I'm? You know, this is why I think I'm, I'm, you know, able to justify the loan." And we listen, and it, it is in a day judgment call. So there's a combination of of the human touch. Uh, which sadly I think is, is the minority. It's about, mm. you know, let's say it's 20% of the time that we apply uh, that sort of override aspect, if you like. But for the most part, given the volume, given the, the, the vastness of, of, the, of the scale of the business, one has to be very efficient about how you process these Would you say that it is the human interface unmasking the sort of the computer and unmasking the human side? Uh, do you believe it might be as high as 20%? And the reason I ask you that, Jan, is because in my field uh, of, um, you know, uh, looking at the night sky through some of the world's greatest space-borne cameras and so forth, uh, there's always this human interface. The computer cannot be my master. The computer has to be my slave. So, in other words, at any given time, even though the computers are so highly programmed, I can always intervene. I suppose yeah. it's very difficult when you've got so many multitudes of people, but my heart goes out to those, again, the young listeners today, who might be future Steve Jobses. So it's back to that thing about not giving up. Okay. You know, so the outside, okay. the, the, the consumer out there, the individual out there says, hey, I, I am definitely worthy of that loan. Yes. And. You know, I think, I think if you if you up for it and you and you really want to fight for it, yes. Uh, clearly, you know, we, we would have a, a policy. Yes. But customers often remind us, but you know, there's a person behind this. There's something about me that says I'm I'm you know I can I can justify that loan. Um. So so you know whether it's twenty percent, that order of magnitude is, is just an illustration of what I'm mm-hmm. saying. Is mm-hmm. there's definitely the minority of the cases where where we you know we do the override because I think a lot of the time we actually our systems and our process is is spot on, but there is the exception. When we've missed something, and it could be that someone out there, maybe it's a salesperson or a, or a individual in the branch, hasn't quite communicated exactly what what there is about Professor David Block that we've missed. Mm-hmm. There's something about mm-hmm. you that you've missed. That mm-hmm. in, added information that we can take into account. Yes. So, so again, you know, if we as a as an organisation are good at filtering up these needs and getting to know them and say, hey, there's a need out there. There's a customer who has a, a story to tell, and you should listen. We will. Um, unfortunately, a lot of the time, you know, that story isn't quite there. But we, but but here's the thing, is to go back to the customer and say, here's why we say no. And I think that's as important as so the that yes. they can evaluate. They can go back it. and say, okay, fine. I think if I can sort this out and maybe earn a bit more cash or save a bit more, get that deposit or, you know, just sort out my credit record or maybe trim down on my expenses. So it's not just about the no. We are a little bit of the school teacher type of, you know, uh, scenario where we need to go back and explain to people why not. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and that's often what irks customers mm-hmm. is that we don't give a good answer. Mm-hmm. You know, they'll come back and say, no, but I don't understand this. You know, don't explain this to me. What? And I think we've won a lot of goodwill from customers when we've actually gone back and said, I'm sorry the answer's no, but here's why. And then customers say, okay, I'll get it. I'll, I'll come back to you. Suppose we have, for example, a young university student. I face 250 when I lecture to first-year students. And these university students perhaps want to say, for example, do drama or art or science or whatever. Does your bank allow for that sort of opportunity where, again, the human interface perhaps overrides what the computer is saying and, again, enables you to help our leaders of tomorrow reach that potential. Because certainly in my field, I am able, even if there's a class of 250, I am able to personally ascertain that this person will become uh, a superstar in whatever their field is. 
I remember well lecturing at the University of Fort Hare and identifying one or two students as being our future leaders of tomorrow. And I'm very privileged to have been, to have mentored the chairman of one of our largest banks and vice chancellors and so forth. So, uh, does your bank allow a yun for lighting the candle of our youth at universities? David, very much so. Um, it's, it's a space that we would like to get closer to and, and be better at. But certainly that's, uh, you know, if, if we can encourage customers to, to join us and if it's a student loan day one or a vehicle loan in day one, we, we, we certainly bank those customers for the rest of their time because they remember that very first loan that, that the bank gave them. And Absolutely. if we're we there at the right time. So it's about being positioned well, you know, when, they, when the need is there, we're there for them. Um, and, yes, we, we take we take the university track record into account. But you just give me an idea. Maybe I think what we should do is next time we evaluate loans from you your class, we'll, <laughs> we'll put you in front of the computer and say, what do you think, David? <laughs> I'd be most honored indeed. But, again, as I wrap up, and we're going to play out with Sting, but as I wrap up, Jan, it goes back to horses, doesn't it, in that in when when riding a horse – there's always timing involved. Yeah. There's always that sense of timing. There's always that sense of determination. That's always that sense of passion, of drive, of joie de vivre. It is all about uh, timing, is it not, Jan? I think so, David. You have been listening to uh, a person who has become a really special person and friend in my own life. You are listening to Professor David Block, and I have the privilege uh, and had the privilege of interviewing the uh, CEO of FNB, the Consumer Division, Mr. Jan Kleinhans, a very special person with a very unique dream, with a very unique set of interests, and who derives a great sense of motivation and of purpose and of drive and of riding, yea, indeed, surfing the waves of tomorrow. Jan, it has been a singular joy and honor having you here in Ravonia with us today. Thank you so much for squeezing out a wee little bit of time from your incredibly busy schedule. Thank you, listeners, for joining us today. Thank you to Colin for his amazing question on the Bitcoin. Allow us to play out with Sting. Thank you, David.